the literary conceit of the dynasty is always that the present is eternal um, rather than just being a contingent moment. So the, the Habsburgs made these odd claims that they were descended from the Romans. Um, the, the Jagiellonians had an odd connection with the Sarmatians. Um, the Romanovs had a certain had and have a certain assist, insistence on their connection to Kiev and Rus, and so on and so forth. These are examples of a general tendency in, in monarchical systems to throw back what I think of as a kind of straight line to the past, a kind of vertical politics of history. And what you're trying to show is that there's an unbroken line from the from an unbroken line, not a broad hand, but an unbroken line, a dynastic line, a genealogical line from the past into the present, and therefore automatically, so to speak, into the future. Now, republics obviously challenge this. The, the concepts I want to try to introduce here, and then try hopefully a little bit later to conjure with, are the ideas of republican and democratic politics of history. What I want to try to claim in a very general way is that in the 19th century, as mass politics of various forms challenged monarchies, challenged dynasties, in some cases overcame them, we see the emergence of, of two different kinds of the politics of memory, both of which arise at about the same time, both of which still exist, and both of which have a lot to do with the nation. So there's what I would like to call the, the republican politics of memory, where people who form republics, for example, uh, a new one like the French, or people who are loyal to republics, for example, an old one, like the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, are no longer entirely embracing this notion of, of, of unbroken vertical continuity into the past. Since there's usually some kind of break, whether it's a revolution or whether it's the election of a monarch who, of course, has a completely different family history, you can't rely, so to speak, passively just on, on continuity. There has to be breaks, and usually these breaks these caesura have something to do with a social contract. A real social contract, for example, the Confederation of Warsaw um, for the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, an imagined social contract, for example, in Rousseau's justification of the French Republic. But in any event, something which involves uh, a class of people out of time who, who, who break continuity, who, who, tra who transform things. Now, that Republican notion of the politics of memory is different from what I want to call the democratic politics of national memory, which arises at about the same time. By the democratic politics of national memory, what I mean is the following conceit, that the people replace the sovereign in history. History is, is, is still about continuity. It's still about unbroken continuity. But the subject of history has changed. It's no longer an individual family. It is instead the people, the mass population as such. Now, these kinds of arguments from history can be used to confirm a republic. For example, Michelet writing about France. They can also be used to challenge an empire. Um, in the case, for example, of Mikhailo Rushevsky, the great Ukrainian national historian, challenging Russian and indirectly Habsburg rights to rule. If the subject of history is the people rather than a certain family, then it follows from this that the people uh, have a moral right to be in charge. So shifting the, the subject from, from the monarch to the people is a methodological move, right? It, it, it's the beginning of what we call social history, uh, which some people still practice. Um, but it's also a moral because it shifts the locus of legitimacy as well. It, it implies, if it doesn't out, outright state, that so far as the people are not in charge of politics, something which is not quite right. 
is going on. Now, the difference, of course, and I'm sure you've already noticed this, there's a profound difference and a profound source of challenge here, because whereas an old-fashioned politics of history, a dynastic politics of history, throws down a narrow line, literally a line, um, something very, something, something visible and black, um, and distinguished from its surroundings, but very narrow, social history, or the democratic politics of memory, is throwing down a broad line. <coughs> History is not one person or one family. History involves thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people. In other words, it's vertical. It goes down, it goes down into the past. But it's also horizontal. It's a broad swath. It's, it's, it's something much larger. It's something much, something much greater. And it's also reflective in an interesting sort of way. It's very easy. I mean, you can try this at home with your own children if you have them. It's very easy to invent history which just involves one family, right? You can, you know, before you, you can go home and convince yourself and then your children that you're descended from Remus and Romulus. It's not, what, doesn't everybody do this? <laughs> My kids think this. They like the wolf especially. Um, the, it's fairly easy to engineer that sort of history because really all you have to do is educate the court, educate the children, cultivate a kind of myth around the court. But the interesting thing about the democratic politics of memory is that it, it not only involves everyone as, as an object of history, it has to involve everyone as a subject of history. Right? So part of the democratization of the politics of history in the 19th century is not just that, for example, Kuduszewski says the people are the proper object of our historical inquiry. It's also that the people themselves have to come to believe this. Right? The people themselves come to believe this. Um, they, they become subjects as well as objects of history. That's the, that's the idea. Now, there's a certain tension in this, of course, because there have to be people who are telling them this, people who are convincing this, them of this, whether those people are teachers working for educational institutions, whether those people are national activists. There's a certain irony here because there's always has to be an elite which is passing on this democratic version of history, but, but nevertheless. There's also another kind of irony about these stories, about the democratic politics of history. And that, that, that is that these stories have a certain end. And when they end, then you're faced with the, you're faced with the difficulty of making up the story again. All of these national politics of history, these democratic politics of history, intended to be structured in three parts. And as soon as I say what these three parts are, they'll be familiar to you. There is a long ago golden age when everything was terrific. There is the current period of fragmentation partition, let's call it, um, dark times through which the nation must pass in order to properly understand the sources of its own tragedy, in order to prepare itself for its renewal. And then there's, and then there's the golden future. And the golden future is the restoration or the creation of the nation state. So there's, there's a very nice logic to this because, this because it simultaneously explains why it is that you are so wonderful even though things are bad. Right, which is a sort of basic human need. It's the thing that we get out of our own biographies every day. Right? There are reasons why things are going so badly for us, but they don't have to do with our own character. <laughs> they have to do with dreadful external forces. But one day we will overcome them with the help of psychotherapy, or in this case, with the help of a profound historical narrative. Right? So the third part of history um, is the part where the state is restored. But of course, once the state is restored, then you, then you face the politics of a very banal sort, and, and, and these narratives are of much less use. Which brings me to the question of how Polish and Ukrainian politics of memory, 
uh, grew up side by side and, and how, how they represented these Republican or Democratic challenges, how they related to, to each other. Now, both Polish and Ukrainian nation builders, the pioneers, the inventors, the entrepreneurs of the politics of memory in the 19th century, were starting from a very similar place. They were starting from the legacy, which they all knew they shared, of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. They were, they were all concerned with what they were going to do with this legacy of the state, which had once been very powerful, uh, which had once extended from the Baltic to the Black Seas, which in the early 17th century was the largest state in Europe, which had won all sorts of interesting battles um, from Ho Chi Minh to Vienna, uh, which also represented certain interesting European political traditions. It claimed that it was a republic, for example. Um, both Polish and Ukrainian nation builders in the 19th century had to grapple with this inheritance. And I want to mark this, by the way. In the 19th century, no one thought as people sometimes do today, that you could simply do away with the whole inheritance, right, and start fresh. There, you, 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 you had to start with the inheritance, transform it, manipulate it in some way so that it was useful for current political needs, but you couldn't, you couldn't dispense with it. In the Ukrainian case, to simplify a bit, what happens is that the, vi the, the very real fact of the social oppression of Ukrainian-speaking peasants under the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth becomes a key concept. The Ukrainian people, who really were, in large measure, peasants who really were, in many ways, colonized um, under, under, under that regime, they become, um, they become the center of a social historical narrative. Also, very real rebellions, um, rebellions of Cossacks, for example, in the 17th century against this order, take on a very central place. And this is true not just in the classical books of Kruszewski, but also in the poems of, of Shevchenko. Um, in both cases, the real problem is the Polish feudal order, and the real source of historical morality and future political legitimacy are those masses of people who are oppressed by it and someday will, will regain justice. On the Polish side, things are different. On the Polish side, things are rather interestingly different. There are two basic ways of dealing with that legacy, with that legacy of greatness. One way is a kind of Republican nostalgia, a nostalgia for the old, the grand, um, the, the, in its positive reading, the tolerant. The, the nostalgic Republicans of the late 19th century, generally people of the left, make the claim that there are certain features of this republic which should be restored. For example, it was multinational, that was good. It was tolerant, that was good. It was colorful, intellectually interesting, all these things are good. And it's fine for us, the people who wish to rebuild Poland, to refer to these ancient examples. At the same time, there's another current in the Polish politics of thought, generally coming from the right, from people called the National Democrats, who take exactly the opposite view. They say that the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was a, was a hindrance, it was an oppression, it oppressed the Polish peasants, which is true enough. Um, the peasants who are the future of our nation do not identify with it whatsoever. Um, and by the way, its tolerance was a bad idea, toleration was what brought it down, and intellectually it wasn't that great either. So there's a kind of complete rejection of, of, of this tradition um, in dialogue, of course, with the people who are nostalgic about it. What this means is that these two different positions about the politics of memory, about what memory should mean for the future, have different attitudes towards Ukrainians. From the side of the people who are nostalgic about the republic, from the side of people who believed in toleration and the possibility of continuity, 
from the side of people who emphasized the state rather than the ethnic nation, there was the possibility for Ukrainophilia. Right? If you think that a future Poland is going to include Poles and Ukrainians and Jews and Belarusians and Lithuanians and so on, then it's very possible for you to be Ukrainophile under certain conditions. The Ukrainians have to understand that that restored state is going to be nevertheless a Polish state. Right? So there's a pretty important qualifier to this Ukrainophilia, um, but, it, but, but the Ukrainophilia is possible. From the right, if you are displacing the politics of memory from the elite, from the republic, um, onto the Polish people, onto the Polish peasantry, then Ukrainophilia is, is, is much, much more difficult. In fact, what you have is a kind of rationally grounded Ukrainophobia. If it's true that the Polish nation are just the peasants, there's no particular reason to glorify them. Um, we know that they're in a competition with other peasants, for example, Ukrainian peasants, and it's important that they win this competition. Um, and therefore, it's important that they develop a kind of a natural sense of hostility towards others. So the, the, the politics of the, of the way Poles and Ukrainians begin to interact is, 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 has to do with these possibilities of Republican democratic identification. On the Polish side, you see a Republican version. We're going to, we're going to glorify the, the, the state. And you see a democratic version. We're going to try to make the people the focus of history. On the Ukrainian side, um, much more important is the democratic version, that, that the people are the center of history. Now, ironically, you won't, you won't of course be surprised to hear this, but ironically, the people who create that version, with the interesting example of Shevchenko, who really was a peasant, uh, with the, with the, in general, those people are themselves elites. In fact, in general, those people are often aristocrats. Um, for example, um, Andrei Sheptitsky, the most important Ukrainian activist, was not only an aristocrat, but somebody who was of, of, Polish, of Polish origin. So, so far, what we have is a very nice and more or less typical story of the tensions within the politics of national memory in the 19th century. The story that I'm telling you thus far, you could also tell more or less about Germans and Czechs, or, or about, about the Germans and the French. That there's a tension within one story, there's a tension between the two stories. Where things get a little bit different um, in, in East European history, the history of the politics of memory in Eastern Europe, is in the 20th century, where these very conventional national narratives or national styles of narrative, which are still with us, are challenged by two overwhelming and largely successful and very different approaches to how you manage memory. Two challenges to the national paradigm as such, one from the Soviet side and, and one from the national socialists. From the Soviet side in the early 20th century, what we see um, is a kind, of, a kind of attempt to subordinate the past to, to, to the future. Um, in the Soviet Union, as it's established in, in 1922, what's, what's at stake here is the future. So you have a Poland which is established after the First World War in 1919, which faces this basic problem that the national history has completed itself, there's a national state, what are you then going to do? Um, your national story is over. I mean, as we know ourselves, ends of history are always very difficult times. Because like once you're in Fukuyama, you still have to get up the next day and make choices. Right? That's the funny thing about the ends of history. Um, the, the Poland has to get up in the morning and make choices in 1919. And what Poland does is a complicated mixture in its pedagogy and its foreign policy and every other realm of politics in life between these democratic and these republican versions of the politics of the past. On the one hand, some Ukrainians in some parts of Poland are repressed largely on the ethnic logic, the democratic <coughs> logic, 
competition. On the other hand, other Ukrainians in other parts of Poland are propped up with policies of affirmative action, are treated as partners in a new republic, are prepared for an adventure against the Soviet Union. Both, logic are, both logics are present at all, at all times. But the Soviet Union is where the real action is for Ukrainians because the huge majority of Ukrainians find themselves in the Soviet Union. And what the Soviet Union does with the politics of memory is extraordinarily radical and has most of its consequences focused precisely on, 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 the, on the Ukrainians themselves. One thing that the Soviet Union does in the 1920s is that it tries to create a national elite with tremendous success, by the way. Ukraine, the, the most impressive national elite ever created in Ukrainian history is that created by Soviet policies of affirmative action in the 1920s. When we look for the good novels, for the interesting art, for the poetry, um, for the young Bohemians who die young, they die young for different reasons than young Bohemians usually die young, that's another story. Those people are found precisely in the 1920s in, in Soviet Ukraine. And they are modernists. They're, they're, they're Soviet modernists. Now, the problem with this, this kind of affirmative action in the Soviet Union was that it left open the possibility that modernism might go the wrong way. The hope was that if you give these people the future, they'll understand it's the Soviet future. But several of them um, tended to think that if there was a future, it was going to be rather a European future or a truly cosmopolitan world future. And so modernism didn't necessarily go where it was supposed to go. The other way, so that's for the elites. The other way that the Soviet Union subordinated the past to the future was with its, with, with, with its policy of modernization. Um, as, the so, as the Soviet Union established itself as socialism in one country, as a, as a project which was isolated from the rest of the world and which had to catch up with the rest of the world, the whole, the whole past, what, the, what Marxists would have seen as feudalism essentially, had to be accelerated so that it could reach the future more, more quickly. Overcoming what the Soviets saw as feudalism in Ukraine was an especially difficult and dangerous business. It involved the collectivization of agriculture, as I'm sure all of you know. It involved the starvation of something like three million human beings. And precisely this adventure, precisely the success of this venture, is, is what defined, I think, the character of the Soviet Union. As of January 1934, um, at the party congress where Kaganovich says that Stalin has created the second revolution, we have a kind of mastery of history. The past has actually, from the Soviet point of view, has been mastered. Um, the future has been, has been brought into line. Things are going exactly the way that they're supposed to go. That's the story that you have. Now, um, I would claim, though, that over the course of the 1930s in the Soviet Union, there's another process, and this is an obvious point, there's another process which is at work. The Great Famine in, in, in Soviet Ukraine is not part of anybody's politics of memory at the time. I mean, this is an important thing to notice, that the most, the most stirring and the most awful events can transpire, they can really transpire without becoming part of anyone's narrative at the time. It's a sort of tragic feature of the difference between memory and history. At the time, the famine was becoming nobody's politics of memory because it was, it, because it was so overwhelmingly awful, because in general, people who were literate were dying first in it. Um, and of course, the Soviet Union itself had no, had no intention of, of recognizing it. Moreover, the famine was linked organically to the Great Terror that followed. One of the sources of the Great Terror, one of the, one of the arguments on behalf of the Great Terror in the Soviet Union, was that the famine was somehow a conspiracy by outside agents, in particular Poles. 
which meant that in the Great Terror, the single bloodiest part was actually the Polish operation, in which around 100,000 ethnic Poles in the Soviet Union were executed. That, too, became part of nobody's politics of memory, because no one fully understood that it was happening at the time. It's only now becoming an event in the historical memory of Poles, because at the time, in 37 and 38, no one was able to discern exactly what was going on. Now, why am I dwelling on this? I'm dwelling on this because, in some sense, amnesia at point A, or forgetfulness at point A, is the raw material of the politics of memory later on. Right? These events that I'm describing in the 1930s are, so to speak, purely historical events. They're not events in the politics of memory as such. Um, because they're not registered, they're not understood. Their nature can't be clarified, their extent is not known. Um, but they do become very important for the politics of memory later on, as, as we will see. So, my general point, though, is that these very traditional Republican or Democratic modes of dealing with the past are overwhelmed by, by a Soviet vision of the future. They are overwhelmed again. Oh, and that Soviet vision of the future generates, so to speak, raw material for later on. We'll return to that. Something similar happens with, with the Nazis. Now, of course, the Nazi vision of the future is very different than the Soviet vision of the future. In fact, um, I think it's simplifying a bit, but not too much, to say that what the Nazis were concerned about was much more timelessness than, than history. If anything, their assault on history was more violent, more extreme, more consistent, more radical than the Soviet one, because they weren't simply trying to force history along to catch up to where it should be. They were abolishing the notion of history as such. For them, um, the, the sequence of cause and effect of past and future was not so terribly important. What mattered was a racial struggle, which doesn't really require a history. It only requires a zoology. It only requires knowing who's up and who's down, who's better and who's worse. Um, there is no meaning to history besides the outcome. So therefore, there's really no meaning to history at all. There's just the struggle, nothing beyond the struggle. And in this particular mode of seeing the world, as I'm sure all of you know, both the Poles and the Ukrainians are seen as subhuman, as Uncha mentioned. Um, and the Jews, who are a very important population in this part of the world, are seen as the source of everything that goes wrong for the Germans, as well as the, the governing people of the Soviet Union. Now, this, as, with, as in the Soviet case, this, um, in the short run, the, this sort of approach to the world, and this sort of approach to the war on the Eastern Front, um, cannot create memory. All it can create is history. So when, for example, the, the, the Germans try to kill the entirety of the Polish educated classes, they're doing that um, in order to make Poland look more like the subhuman group of motley laborers that it's supposed to already always have been. They're doing it for that reason. That's not an event which is easy to process historically. Um, Pol Polish intellectuals had a hard time understanding where this was coming from, what it was supposed to mean. It was going to take a long time. Kotting is the paradigmatic example of this, but the entire assault on the Polish intelligentsia is, is, is a bit like that as well. It's, this is generating raw material for future memory, but it's, so to speak, not generating the politics of memory as such. Now, something very interesting happens here in the relationship between Polish and Ukrainian memory, and I, and I want to return to that. It seems at first glance that the way that Poles, or, 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 or patriotic Poles, and patriotic Ukrainians remember the Second World War, as all of these, as, as these horrible experiences begin to be processed as time passes, couldn't be more different. At one level, the memory of the Second World War seems to be something where Poles and Ukrainians have exactly the opposite perspectives. Why? 
because a Polish state existed and was destroyed, whereas Germans recruited many Ukrainians from that state to be their collaborators. Uh, and since Poles were losing the state, they were fighting against Germans insofar as they fought to get a state back. Because Ukrainians did not have a state, it was politically plausible, politically reasonable of them to think that Germans might help them to build a state. So the politics of this seemed to be in opposition. And worse than that, there's an event that takes place in the Second World War, which seems to be the most extreme example of how national memory would be impossible to reconcile. Um, and that is the ethnic cleansing of 1943. Over the, over the course of the war, conditions were created in, in part of what happened in Poland that led to a campaign of massive ethnic cleansing, massive violence um, and killing by, of Poles by Ukrainian nationalists in 1943. And that particular moment, which was horrible, and which I can talk about more if you're interested in the question and answer, that particular moment seems to be the moment from which Polish and, and Ukrainian memory must depart and, and, and never and never and never and never return, never reconcile themselves to again. I want to claim though that what happens is a little more interesting than that. Because in in both the Polish, this is going to seem subtle and maybe a little bit perverse, but I, I hope you'll see where it goes in the end. In both the Polish and the Ukrainian recollections of the ethnic cleansing and of the war itself, it's the democratic version of memory which is triumphant. It's the ethnic version of history that triumphant. People killed in the name of ethnicity, people died because of ethnicity. That seems like an opposition, but it actually means that memory is happening in the same kind of mode. And I'm going to return to why that matters a little bit later on. Now, what happens with the Soviet Union is crucial here too. Remember, most Ukrainians who were alive um, when the, in, in 1941, when the war on the Eastern Front begins, most Ukrainians who were alive in 1945, when the war comes to an end, are living in the Soviet Union. By 1945, it's almost all of them, because the Soviet Union is extending to the West. And so what, what happens in the Soviet Union is incredibly important for what's going to happen to Ukrainian memory. And again, making a large point very briefly and very roughly, what happens in, 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 the, in the course of the Second World War is that the Soviet Union ceases to be about the future. Okay, I realize there are millions of people in Western Europe for whom that can't possibly have been true. But I think in a fundamental way, California as well, in a fundamental New York, in Cincinnati, Ohio, in, in, in a fundamental way, the, the reference point for Soviet Union, the Soviet Union changes. The fundamental reference point becomes the Great Fatherland War. It becomes the Second World War. Um, it becomes an event of the past, which is fundamentally different from a, a socialism which is going to arrive in the future. It's a different structure. It's a much more conventional structure. You have to remember the past, and you have to remember it the right way. And I would say that from May 1945, this, this, this happens, and immediately everyone has to account for it. Immediately, um, politi the political correctness inside the Soviet Union depends upon the, the, the sec what you did, what you didn't do, what you could be announced for during the Second World War. And importantly, in the new satellite states, in Poland, for example, this is true as well. Suddenly, the politics of memory is all about the correct interpretation of an event in the recent historical past. Now, to give a dramatic example from Poland, um, in order for Polish communists to rule the country, they have to have a view of the Second World War, which is both correct from the Soviet point of view and appealing from the Polish point of view. And this is what leads us to um, the, the convenient notion, which is still repeated by historians in Poland to this day, that in Poland during the Second World War, three million Poles were killed and three million Jews were killed. If you reflect upon that for just a moment, I mean, what are the chances, honestly, 
that it would be three million and three million. It wasn't. It was about. It, it wasn't. The total was about four and a half million. The three million for the Jews is about right. It's a little bit higher. For the Poles, it's maybe a million, a million and a half. And those figures were known at the time. And the communists who ruled Poland, in particular Jakub Berman, um, made the active decision to change the demography so that Poles and Jews died in the same numbers. Why? Because that makes it seem like the death and the suffering in the Second World War was national, was part of a national, was part of a general national experience. Um, and, that, and that this thing which we call the Holocaust, so to speak, didn't happen as a distinct event. What happened was something which happened to Polish citizens. And this was acceptable to the Soviets because this is a minor key version of the general Soviet story of what happens in the Second World War, which is that whatever the Germans did, they were doing it to Soviet citizens, to peaceful Soviet citizens, not to Jews or to Belarusians, but to peaceful Soviet citizens. And, and, and the interesting implication of this, a very important implication of this for, for the, the politics of memory, is that communism after the war, both in the Soviet Union but especially in Poland, um, and this is actually Nikolai's subject, is, is, is ethno-communism from the very beginning. Because it has to relate to the, to the Second World War, and because it has to do it in ethnic terms, in so to speak democratic terms, it is ethnic from the very beginning. Ethnicity is built into it from, from the very beginning. Okay, so this brings me to what happens to pol the politics of memory after the Second World War. And it seems to me that the very interesting story, the very interesting intellectual story, and, and one about which I think that the great book still has to be written, is the way in which the Republican version of, of national memory reasserts itself and begins to challenge the Democratic. Uh, and the, the particular, the place where this happened, I mean, this really happened inside the minds of two people, Julius Miroszewski and Jerzy Kiedrowitz. The, the place that this happened was, was the journal Paris Cultura. The journal Paris Cultura going against not only the official propaganda of communist Poland, but also the general and perfectly understandable sentiments of Polish immigrants, survivors around the world, privileged the notion that Poland was fundamentally a state and that the experience of the Second World War had to be processed in the terms which were most likely to help that state thrive, survive, and regain independence in, in the future. Um, now, this, this was a very, very important move that was made. And uh, you, you're probably familiar with the particular ways that Miroszewski and Gilroyds made this argument, that rather than being concerned about the correct match between ethnicity and political borders, we accept the borders the way they are, rather than being concerned with the very true, legitimate uh, historical grievances between Ukrainians and Poles or Lithuanians and Poles, we put those aside and concentrate on the politics of regaining sovereignty. Um, this was all, this can all be seen as a kind of recovery of the Republican mode of thinking about the past. That the past has to do with the state rather than about the ethnicity. Now, this created an interesting possibility for negotiation with Ukrainian intellectuals inside the Soviet Union and outside the Soviet Union. Because Ukrainian intellectuals, especially those from Western Ukraine, were themselves undertaking a similar move. The ethnic concept of the past, which had been highly motivating during the Second World War, which had led to not just the horrors of ethnic cleansing, but also to a, a very impressive and long-lasting resistance movement in Western Ukraine, um, horribly destructive for everyone involved, but nevertheless certainly uh, testifying to an amazing level of dedication um, and courage, that this had not worked out, and that one of the reasons it hadn't worked out was that this ethnic idea 
the idea that the, the past, that the, that the, the past of the polity, the past of the people had to do with ethnicity was not working in most of Ukraine. So over the course of the 1950s, 60s, and 1970s, many of the Ukrainians who we know as the dissidents, many of the Ukrainians, who, some of whom came to power after 91, reframed the story so that it was less about the past of the nation, less social history, and much more about the past of the state. They began to think about Ukraine in terms of a civic identity, this identity which is more and more predominant in Ukrainian discourse today. What this meant in turn was that there, there was a possibility for discussion. Because you know, the difference between one of the major differences between the Democratic and the Republican versions of the past is that the Democratic one is very difficult as a foundation for dialogue because it leads to conversations which you have all seen, heard, taken part in, where I say I suffer more, you say you suffered more, I say it was your fault, you say it was my fault, right? That is what the ethnic understanding of the past leads to. And there can be merit to those discussions. There are, there are certainly questions there that can be answered. Um, you can count how many people were killed. That's a useful exercise. But the, the, it's, that has a limit in terms of how far the dialogue can go. If the past is reframed in civic terms, then the questions become things like, what was the problem that led to your state falling apart? What was the problem that led to my state falling apart? Are there things which we might do in common or even together which would make it less likely that our states would fall apart in the future? That's the way that the dialogue shifted at least in this particular conversation on the, on the pages of Paris Cultura. And this conversation was very relevant, extremely relevant in 1989 to 1991. Um, because in this, in this incredibly interesting period between 1989 and 1991, Poland had become a sovereign state and Ukraine was still part of the Soviet Union. And here we see one of just absolutely crucial moments of the politics of memory. Things could go very wrong during this period just to give you the example of Yugoslavia. <coughs> things, could, things could go less wrong, but still rather wrong, um, Czechoslovakia. In the, case of, in the case of Poland and Ukraine, what happens between 89 and 91 is extremely interesting. Polish foreign policy embodies, in a highly radical form, the civic politics of memory. Um, the, the, the Polish foreign ministry <coughs> takes the position that it is going to treat Ukraine as a sovereign state, and that it's going to recognize Ukraine's boundaries. Now, Ukraine is not a sovereign state, right? And those boundaries are, of course, created in a way which is highly controversial. They involve taking half of Poland, right? If you were to have, there were things to talk about with those boundaries. If you wanted to talk about populations, if you thought about history as social history, right? If you were taking the democratic view of history, Lvov, Lviv was a topic, right? But if you take the civic version of history, if you're concerned only about the state, and what he learned about preserving the state, it's not a topic. So the Polish foreign ministry took a radical, I mean an incredibly radical view of all these things, saying literally, it became a kind of mantra, we're going to leave history to the historians, which is very flattering, of course. I mean, you want to know, you want to believe that you have some kind of mission in life. <laughs> but but they, they took this view so radically that I think it actually did affect the way things turned out in Ukraine, in a way which is probably still relevant today. Because the civic business, it isn't just the nicer way of having a conversation in Paris if you're Poland or Ukrainian. The civic business has direct consequences for how national liberation movements see their problem. In Ukraine, national liberation movements have always had at least two problems, the Russian problem and the Polish problem. I mean, they've usually also had the Ukrainian problem um, or Ukrainian problems. Um, but they've traditionally, geopolitically, there's the, there's the problem from the east and there's a problem from the west. And these interact 
because the Russians will direct you towards the Poles, and the Poles will direct you towards the Russians. It becomes very complicated. In 1989, for the first time in the history of, of nationality and national politics, there was only one direction of the problem. Ukrainian activists working from 89 to 91 were not worried that Poland was going to claim the rule. Were not worried in general about Poland at all. Um, in fact, tended to think in some rough way Poland was on their side, was an example, and so on. That was something very new. Arguably, that contributed to the end of the Soviet Union because, of course, the tactics that the KGB was using in the Baltics and in Western Ukraine was to direct national movements against each other. Um, the, the, the KGB was in particular trying to take advantage uh, of the history of 1943 to make sure that Poles and Ukrainians couldn't possibly cooperate. But since the discussion had been framed not in ethnic but in civic terms, not in democratic but in republican terms, that didn't actually work, it, work itself out. So what I'm trying to claim is that this this, 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 this turn in discourse, this possibility for a different understanding of the politics of memory, which is still the politics, it's still politics and it's still memory, it's just framed in a different way, has, different, has foreign policy implications, which may in this case have been rather significant. Okay, so what happens after Poland and Ukraine are both independent, this period from 1991 to the present? In Ukraine, broadly speaking, most of the things that Poles take very seriously, like the ethnic cleansing of Bologna in 1943, like the loss of Polish territory in the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in 1939. In general, these things are not at all significant in Ukrainian discourse. Um, th these are West Ukrainian issues, but Ukraine is a very big country. And for the most part, the things that Poles find significant when they're in the ethnic mode, when they're in the democratic mode, are not that significant in Ukraine. In general, what one sees in the Ukrainian politics of memory after 1991 are two kinds of pluralism. The first kind of pluralism is oligarchic pluralism, which is the kind of pluralism that Ukraine has in every sphere of life. Um, that, that is, different centers of power could favor different ideas of history at the same time. So you, unlike in other places, uh, you did have a certain amount of discussion about the past. The other kind of pluralism that Ukraine had was sequential pluralism. So when Yushchenko comes to power, he advocates a different politics of memory in which the famine is very important. When Yanukovych wins the elections, all of a sudden the famine is less important. But there's nevertheless a kind of pluralism, at least a basic one. There's a difference of opinion which, which, which is visible. Now, when I say that Poland is insignificant in Ukrainian debates about the past, um, I, 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 I want to, of course, recognize that there are some exceptions. Um, one, one recent exception, which I'm going to return to, is 1943. But I also want to point out that even though Poland seems to be strikingly insignificant in Ukraine's discussions of the past, Poland nevertheless pops up at certain crucial moments. And I want to ask why. In 2004, um, in the middle of the Orange Revolution, it was the Poles, in that case, with your guest for tomorrow, Kwasniewski, Alexander Kwasniewski, who came and served as a mediator. Um, in 2014, uh, it was Radosław Sikorski, the Polish foreign minister, again, who served as the most important mediator in the middle of, of the revolution. And there's this funny tendency, which some of you who are paying close attention to the Maidan might have noticed, where in the general critique of Europe by the, by the activists on the Maidan last year and this year, the general overwhelming and sort of heartbreaking critique of the European Union, generally there was an exception, that exception was Poland. Well, why, why is that? How did that, how did that come about? Where, where, does that, where does that come from? Now, 
I want to suggest that the place where that comes from is, again, the difference between this democratic and this republican notion of solidarity, or this republican and this democratic notion of the past. Most days, for the, I think, you can correct me in question and answer, because I can tell that 28% of you were polls. Most days, 28% of you left. Um, most days, the standard way that polls feel about Ukrainians, and at least this is what the opinion polls tell us, is suspicion and even fear. Indeed, for most of the 1990s, if you look back at the opinion polls, polls consistently said they were more afraid of Ukrainians than of Germans, um, which, is rather, which is rather interesting. Um, and it has everything to do with the, the, the very real ethnic cleansing of the war, and also the way that communist politics exploited that particular, that particular fear. So in a kind of default ethnic mode, there's, polls do not generally, you can correct me again, but there, at least let's put it this way, sociologically, very little sympathy was registered. But nevertheless, in moments of high politics, like 2004, or more recently, this year, 2014, what seems to happen is that there's a shift in mentality from the ethnic, the democratic way of seeing history to the civic way of seeing history. So all of a sudden, the, the, the register of the arguments changes. Uh, so people who, are, who one day are criticizing Ukrainians for not recognizing that 1943 was a genocide, <coughs> the, literally the next day are, are campaigning for a much more active Polish policy to support Ukraine. And I think that has to do with the possibility that people can switch between modes. <coughs> that what I'm talking about when I say the democratic and the republican version of the politics of the past, this isn't just different people, it's different modes which can exist inside, inside the same person. And so I would, I would put forward to you as a claim which I can't prove, that what has happened in 2004 and what happening, part of what's happening now is that in moments of crisis, Poles are capable of seeing Ukraine as a parallel state, as even a fraternal state to abuse a much abused notion. A state which is in a, in a parallel position, worthy of sympathy because worthy of support, right? Worthy of sympathy because worthy of support. The sympathy follows a certain kind of logic. But I want to close with the thought that what is happening in the politics of memory between Ukrainians and Poles right now may involve something rather new, something rather different, something which goes beyond um, these two logics of, of, of the politics of the past, which come from the 19th century. In general, I think it's fair to say that in conditions of independence in the last decade and a half, what's happened is that both of these logics have reappeared on both sides. With, with the end of communism, and of course with the end of national socialism, you see a very, you see the resurgence of very familiar ways of talking about the past, in general, and on both sides. But I think, interestingly, something else, something new may be, in fact, happening. And I think the, the, the novel thing is that events which are themselves rather recent are suddenly being enfolded into both nations' memories. Or to put it in a different way, Events which aren't from the 19th century and aren't from the 30s and 40s, events which happened in communism or even in post-communism, are beginning to register to become central in the memory politics of both sides, and that that is, is having a certain kind of effect. Let me give you first what might seem to be just a minor example, which I think is very simple. If you're like me, you've been doing a lot of reading of press reports about the revolution and counter-revolution in Ukraine. You might have noticed that people writing in English in French and German, most Western languages, don't quite know how to describe those Ukrainians who were on the Maidan, who
who then chose, chose to use violence. It's an unbelievably, actually, an unbelievably awkward linguistic situation. It's so awkward that people one day will say activists, you know, and then the next day will say combatants, or one day they'll say activists, the next day they'll say terrorists, even though they're describing, you know, the same, the same people. Um, if you read the Polish press, you notice that this problem does not exist in Poland, because the Poles have the word powstańcy. This was a powstanie. It was an uprising. It's perfectly natural. It fits into normal historical traditions. There's a word for someone who carries out a national uprising. That person is a powstaniec. And so if you read Gazeta Wyborcza, you can read about powstańcy. That category exists in Poland, because that experience exists in Poland. Right? <laughs> And, 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 and as you read, if you do read, again, you can correct me if you're Polish, but as you read that word powstancy over and over and over again in the press as a description of what's happened in Ukraine in 2014, it can't help but in some way make that, make that thing which has happened in Ukraine more high, make it, make, it, make it more approachable, make it seem like something which is sympathetic. And of course, there are similarities. I mean, not so much with the actual powstancy of the 19th century, but I would say with the Warsaw Uprising. That is to say, it's a moment where people of very different politics are brought together, right? And, and if you look at the, at the Polish Home Army, the Polish resistance in Nazi Germany, the people who were in the Home Army had all kinds of different views, right? All of the things that you can say about the Maidan today, and most of them anyway, um, also applied to the Home Army, that you had men and women, you had people of different generations, you had people of different political commitments, you had people from different parts of the country who were unified because of what they saw as a national cause. Now, the Maidan was very much like that, is still very much like that. And I think this notion of postancy, like this notion of a special national moment, captures that as well. But there's something, there's something which may be even more interesting going on. Um, and Marcia Shore actually just wrote an article about this, so I'm going I'm to steal her idea as I, as I move to a close. Um, the other thing which is, which is recent and which is a bit similar, and which I think serves as a kind of matrix onto which polls can see consciously, half-consciously, unconsciously what's happening in Ukraine is, is, is solidarity. Now, I don't have to prove this to you because, of course, the way that, uh, the way one of the most compelling symbols in Poland now is, uh, is the, the old solidarity banner, right? But instead of red and white, the same jumbled letters in blue and yellow, which is absolutely ambiguous from, from a Polish point of view. I think that the, the, the resemblance is something more than accidental. I think what's happening is that his recent history, at least in Poland and Ukraine, not everywhere, recent history is creeping into memory. The history of Poland in 1980-81, solidarity martial law, is not so difficult to map onto the history of Ukraine in 2013-2014. Maidan external intervention. And I think something like that is, 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 is happening. I also think that there's a certain that, that solidarity, contentious as it is as a tradition in Poland, opens the way for what well what Tim called at the very end of his book, he cites Hannah Arendt, um, saying that solidarity proved that the human capacity to create new things. That is, it's a new kind of politics. It's not entirely captured by right or left, by um, by elite or, or, or mass, by conservative or liberal. It's something which is new. And that, that notion that there can be new kinds of politics in special situations also seems to apply to the Maidan and to be applied more or less unreflexively, at least by some ways, towards the Maidan. Now, I'm closing with this note about things that are new because, of course, there's another politics of history which is going on now in Ukraine 
which focuses on the old. Um, and I'm just going to just suggest what this might be and what it might mean. In the way that the Maidan is portrayed outside of Ukraine, um, that is to say, in, in, in Russia, um, and the means of mass communication which are affiliated with one another with Russia, you have something entirely different going on. Um, you have, rather than this sort of complicated discussion which I've tried to lead you down, where there's a history of representation, there's a history of Poles and Ukrainians as a Republican and Democratic, and maybe a new uh, solidarity idea, instead you have a, a, a very powerful and successful attempt to reduce this to the former, to, to, to the categories of the Second World War, in, in which what's, hap what's happening is not uh, civil society, it's not a, the unification of different sorts of people, it's not resistance, legitimate or legitimate, it's simply fascism. Now, that is, has been, I mean, I, so I'm going to note it, we don't have time to talk about why, that has been extraordinarily successful, and, and not, only inside, not only inside Russia, and it certainly is a politics of memory. The notion that the good people are the anti-fascists and the bad people are the fascists comes from somewhere. It comes from the 1930s and 1940s. And it's also a way of very powerfully dividing, um, in a Manichaean way, the, 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 good, the, good from the, the good from the evil, essentially. What, I, what I'd like to close by suggesting is that um, one final thing that Poles and Ukrainians have in common, although, and other people often don't share, is the recognition that fascism and anti-fascism is a politics of memory. That it's not some sincere, you know, that it's not some sincere uh, emotional or, or, or historical reference. That fascism and anti-fascism is a politics of memory. That it can exist in all kinds of combinations. So just to give you the most extreme example, a lot of the Russian politics of memory vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine has involved claiming that Jews are Nazis which from a, a, a larger Western point of view is sort of, you know, either you don't register that it's happening, which I think is most people, or you might scratch your head and say, hmm, that's probably not likely. From a Polish point of view, that sort of thing is totally familiar, right? In Poland, you have the spectacle in 1968 of the, of the Communist Party expelling Jews while, while claiming that it's protecting them from reactionaries. You have the spectacle during Solidarity of 1981 of, of the party itself using ethnic nationalism in calling its opponents Jews and calling them anti-Semites <coughs> at the same time, right? Mobilizing both of these things at the same time. That was the bread and butter of, of, of a certain communist politics of memory. And that sort of thing is now coming out again. That is so strange, that is very strange, I think, for most people in the West. So strange that I think we don't even notice it. We don't notice that it's there, we don't notice the contradiction. Um, we, we are just sort of moved by it, but we don't really see what's going on. The thing that I think maybe Poles and Ukrainians still have in common, and again I invite you to correct me or to modify what I'm saying, is the sense that that is also a politics of memory. Um, that that is a rival kind of politics of memory, but that, that it's a politics, and that one can think about it politically rather than in, in some other way. So that brings me to 2014. Um, it brings me through the ideas of, of politics of memory, traditional, Republican, Democratic. It brings me through a certain evolution of, of how Poles and Ukrainians have interacted, where democratic politics is harder, Republican politics is easier, and we may now be somewhere new. So that's where I'd like to close. Thank you very much.